I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Robo-advising is a new frontier in investing that is itself constantly reinventing itself. Originally conceived as a means of automating investment opportunities, the field has grown to encompass wealth management and, more recently, even banking. Along the way, it's raised a number of opportunities and concerns as millennials and regulators pay the space more attention than ever. But as is often the case for fintech, it can be hard keeping track of the latest developments, much less the arc of the development of the industry. So with that in mind, we are delighted to welcome Andley Rockleff, the CEO of Wealthfront, one of the first, biggest, and best-known robo-advisors in the space, to help walk us through what's happening at Wealthfront and the industry at large. I need you to listen to the vision. All your verses sound like dirty dishes. I'm about to clean them in the kitchen. And we making money by the minute. I'm about to do a way different. Andy, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe we should just start off with the story of Wealthfront. Um, you guys were one of the first firms. Um, how has Wealthfront evolved and, and how has your evolution compared with that of the industry more generally? Well, we actually are the result of some learnings I had as part of my experience as a member of the University of Pennsylvania Endowment Investment Board. I understand that you taught law at Penn for a while. I've been a trustee for about 15 or 16 years. One of my responsibilities as a trustee is to sit on their Endowment Investment Committee, uh, of which I now actually chair. The Penn Endowment is the, I think, seventh largest university endowment in the United States. The premier university endowments are the best managed pools of capital, diversified pools of capital, I believe, in the world. And they're all managed very, very similarly, probably because many of the people who manage these endowments all learned under David Swenson at Yale, the fellow who runs the Penn Endowment, uh, the Stanford Endowment, the MIT Endowment. They all trained uh, under Swenson at Yale. And one of the things that I noticed is that a lot of what they do is manual and spreadsheet-based. And I thought, gosh, if you automate what they do in software, you could deliver an 80-20 version of it to the masses. Most people don't have access to good investment management. As a matter of fact, when I was a venture capitalist for 25 years, many of the people that I recruited to my portfolio companies who went on to financial success would often come to me and ask for investment advice, and I could never tell them to do what I do because they couldn't afford the minimums. So it struck me that if we implemented much of what the endowments do in software, we could democratize access to that sophisticated investment management, thereby doing a social good. And that's what attracted me to it. So that's really interesting. So how then did you take this idea and then move into a retail advisory service? It took a little while to figure out the exact combination of capabilities to offer, but in uh, December of 2011, we launched our current service, and that was a diversified and rebalanced portfolio of low-cost index funds. 
Now, that was incredibly simplistic. And when people would ask me about it, I'd say, we, uh, we add very little value and charge accordingly, meaning we charge a really low fee. And what's surprising to me is that the vast, vast majority of people who have entered the space since we got going a little over nine years ago are offering what we did nine years ago. So there is very little advancement from other vendors in this space. Now, over that time, we uh, added a number of features that made our service more and more tax efficient to the point we introduced something called automated tax loss harvesting. And amazingly, the taxes that you save from turning that service on, which, are, uh, which have no incremental cost, pay for our fee six to 12 times over per year. So effectively, our service is more than free. We give you more than what the, the fee costs. We added something called stock-level tax loss harvesting. That's where we do tax loss harvesting within an index. There's a number of firms led by uh, Parametric and Aperio that manage over $100 billion that have been doing it for wealth management clients for years, but at a much, much higher price. And then we offered more and more investment services. Again, interesting, bringing tax loss harvesting, which I think is more sophisticated since it's a strategy aimed at uh, limiting the recognition of short-term capital gains uh, since shorter-term gains are taxed uh, at, at a higher rate than longer-term capital gains. Uh, but you've made a lot of news recently by opening up higher interest-bearing uh, accounts and really by, by doing so, opening up robo-advising to banking. Can you walk us through what that evolution is supposed to look like? Sure. Well, our vision is to deliver what we call self-driving money. And what we mean by that is you can direct deposit your paycheck with us. By the way, we will give the money to you two days earlier than a bank will. Uh, we'll automatically pay your bills and then route the remaining money to the most appropriate destination, be it a savings account or a wide variety of investment accounts. So by integrating banking and investing, we make it delightfully easy to grow your wealth. We've had all kinds of guests on the show from operators of investment platforms to cryptocurrency exchanges and investors. And one of the things they routinely stress is operational risk, whether or not your, your, your algorithms are fair or whether tech operates in the way it's supposed to from a technological perspective and, and also regulatorily. It's a question that really seems to pervade uh, the financial technology space, and, and it's something Wealthfront has, I would assume, had to grapple with. What's your philosophy on this, and how do you think about it? Well, first, let's go back to first principles. First, we haven't had operational problems, and it's important to understand why. Unlike many of the other people you just mentioned, we are not trying to outperform the market. Our chief investment officer, Bert Malkiel, wrote perhaps the most influential book in investing, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, about 45 years ago. And in it, he made the case that one would be far better off investing in a portfolio of index funds than trying to outperform the market. And the data is unbelievably clear. Every time finance professors do the research, they prove that it's almost impossible to outperform the market. 
that doesn't stop people from trying because it's fun and they think they can, they can't. You know, uh, there's a bunch of research that shows even among the professional uh, investment managers, only something like 15% outperform the market after 10 years. So you might be able to do it in one year, but it's really hard to do it over a number of years consistently. So we don't try to outperform the market. What we try to do is focus on the three things over which we do have control, which is diversification to minimize your risk, minimizing your fees, and minimizing your taxes. The only things that are deterministic. So we're not trying to outperform the market, so we don't have fancy algorithms. One of the biggest misunderstandings about robo-advisors is there are fancy algorithms. No, we take actually a system for diversifying your portfolio that was devised in the 1950s and won the Nobel Prize in 1990 called Modern Portfolio Theory. It is unbelievably simple and unbelievably straightforward. So it doesn't require much operational excellence, number one. Number two, uh, from our beginning, we have practiced something called uh, test-driven development. So unlike uh, traditional ways of developing software where you write the code and then you have a QA team try to test it, our engineers first write the tests before they write the code. So the code cannot be released unless it passes all of the tests. And we've been a, a leader in this evolution. And we've even taught companies like uh, Facebook and Google how to do continuous deployment, where you make 50 code pushes a day instead of one every month or two months. And that way you can improve, you can deliver operational excellence. And this is one of the ways that we have built trust with our customers. And we haven't run into the issues that trading systems do. When you're moving into banks, that does involve regulation. Uh, people want to make sure that uh, they're going to have their money uh, when they need it and that their money is going to be held safely. Now, that's interesting because how you structure your operations as a robo-advisor, as, as an investment advisor, requires coordination with other entities that are uh, regulated in very different ways. Could you explain how this works um, from a compliance standpoint, and what robo-advisors are supposed to bring to the table in this coordination? Well, because we don't have a bank charter, we have to partner with a company that does. And there are a number of vendors today known as banking as a service providers. So you can either think of them as lending their balance sheet or providing base services on top of which we add a user interface. So we have partnered with a company called Green Dot Bank, which is a publicly traded bank. They offer a banking as a service service. All of the challenger banks are, have built their services on top of a service delivered by a banking as a service vendor. And all we do is add a pleasing user experience on top of that. And some of us have added more value-added features for example, than others. So for example, in our case, uh, we pay a, a high level of interest on what you would think of as your checking account. So if you open a Wealthfront account, uh, we offer you 0.35% when interest rates were higher, 
we were able to offer 2.57%. Unfortunately, as a broker-dealer, we're not allowed to pay out a higher rate than we can earn, but we, we broker these deposits to FDIC-insured banks such that we can offer a million dollars of FDIC insurance on our accounts. And so the money every day is swept out to one of four banks so that you can earn the high interest. But when you use your debit card or you send a check or you pay a bill, we sweep the money in in order to make that payment. And then we can do things. So that's unique. The challenger banks can't do that, pay a high rate of interest. They have a savings account, but not in one integrated account. Uh, A few weeks ago, we announced that you can instantly move money from your cash account, you can think of it as a checking account, into investing. No one else offers that. So one of the the ways to think about it is if we pay you your paycheck two days earlier, that's just the elimination of float, and we move money immediately and avoid one or two days there, well, every pay cycle, we can get your money to work three or four days sooner. So that you could be in the market 100 days more every single year. And that's just our willingness to not earn money on float and to move money faster through technology. Fortunately, it's not complicated technology. That's really quite helpful. Um, but I just want to go back to this idea of the of the interest rate and the interest rate mechanics. How exactly are you, by setting up this system of brokers, investment advisors, and banks, able to offer a higher interest rate? Because we are able to broker our deposits out to other banks. So here's what uh, here's the the simplistic explanation. Banks need deposits in order to make loans. So if a bank has uh, increased demand for loans, they need to get more deposits. Now, they could raise the interest rate that they pay to their consumers, but if they did that, they'd have to offer it to all of their consumers. So that could be very, very expensive. Instead, what many banks do is they go to the wholesale market and they offer a higher interest rate than what they're willing to offer their consumers to a wholesale customer like us. So in other words, they might offer to pay 25 basis points above the effective Fed funds rate. So today, the effective Fed funds rate is about eight basis points. Uh, The Fed has uh, committed to keep it between zero and 25 basis points. That's what they announced when they lowered rates uh, back a year ago because of COVID. Uh, and then we get 25 basis points above that. So that gets you to 33 basis or 35 basis points. And we're willing to not make any net interest margin on that in order to get people to direct deposit with us because they're ultimately going to move it into their investment account. You mentioned the pandemic. How has it impacted your operations Um, what effect has it had on the overall industry? You know, it hasn't affected it that much. Uh, I think it will in a year. And let me explain why. The the investment business that it has affected enormously is the day trading business. So the companies that enable uh, self-directed trading or brokerage services have exploded. I think that 
People were really bored during COVID. They couldn't bet on sports. They started playing with, with gambling on stocks. And that business has absolutely exploded. And I think the whole GameStop stock thing uh, added to that uh, craze. So that business has exploded. Now, one thing that we know is that every 10 years or so, there is uh, an event that leads to an explosion of day trading. So it happened in the late 90s, it happened around the financial crisis, and it's happened recently. And one thing that I can tell you is every time it happens, it does not end well. Because as I said earlier, the research is really clear that people cannot outperform the market. So they learn their lessons, and then they want to come back to the boring supplier like us. We are really dull and boring. It's no fun to use Wealthfront. It's a delightful experience, but it's not exciting or fun. And so you have to lose money the other methods in order to realize that you know, we've generated a compound return on taxable accounts of just under 9% over nine years, 9% annually. I bet you fewer than 5% of Americans have generated a compound return of 9%. And it's even better when you consider the value of tax loss harvesting. Well, you know, you're talking about the explosion of interest into different kinds of investments, and one of those is, is obviously this uh, the cryptocurrency craze and the, and the, and and the like. Uh, I mean, could you imagine, particularly to the extent to which cryptocurrencies become institutionalized? I mean, is this something that you can imagine a, a, a robo advisor also getting involved in it at, at some point or or another, or, or or are there certain kinds of assets precisely due to their volatility that may or may not be suitable for even um, uh, uh, sort of automated investing? Well, well we, we are, are a fiduciary. fiduciary. We, are we are a registered, registered investment, investment advisor, advisor, which means we have to look for, out for the best interests of our clients. So when it comes to recommended portfolios, I don't think you're going to see us offer cryptocurrency because by definition, any asset that doesn't have a cash flow is a speculation. It's not an investment. Why does it have a value? If there's no cash flow, how can it have value? Why does gold have value? Why does this shiny piece of metal have any value? It's all emotional. Well, if you look at institu sophisticated institutions, they don't speculate. They don't own gold. They don't own cryptocurrencies. Now, does that mean that it doesn't have a place in the economy? Absolutely not. Uh, I remember when uh, soon after Bert Malkiel joined us as our chief investment officer, we had an event for our, our uh, local clients in the Bay Area. And after a, a panel discussion, we had Q&A, and somebody in the audience said, Bert, do you own any stocks? This is the man who invented the index fund. And he said, yes, and I really like going to the dog track too. He said, but I think of it as entertainment. And as long as I keep it to less than 10% of my net worth, I'm fine doing it. So cryptocurrency is a speculation. It is not an investment. If you want to do it, you're welcome to do it, just like investing in angel investments or things of that sort. I don't recommend it, but if you want to do it on your own, I think you know, you're a responsible individual. You can make your own decisions. Andy, thanks so much. This has been a really interesting conversation, and, and I appreciate you uh, walking this professor through uh, the ins and outs of robo-advising. My pleasure.
As a law professor, I find fintech infinitely interesting because of its complexity and nuance. Crypto isn't crowdfunding, crowdfunding isn't microfinance, and microfinance isn't marketplace lending. And robo-advising, to be sure, is its own very distinct domain. Now, I've spent less time thinking about it than some other pockets of the ecosystem, but I've always thought of robo-advising as at least potentially complicated, since the benefits of even something like tax harvesting depends, I suppose, on an individual's particular tax rate. If a person lives in a high-tax state or makes a lot of money, it seems that the practice would be relatively more beneficial than for someone in the opposite situation. Still, Andy made some really interesting points that got me thinking. Regulatorily, investment advising is far less complex than, say, crypto or high-frequency trading. And the technology is far more understandable than blockchains and machine learning. Instead, the value proposition relies very much on simplicity. Still, my sense is that these differences can get lost, especially as the world migrates to platform-based financial services. And as platforms move into ever-diverse business lines, my hunch is that distinctions will become ever more difficult to make, raising both challenges and opportunities in the sector for years to come. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.